ask you all a question. Uh, have you suffered today? <laughs> I mean, have you been impatient, irritated, wanting the bell to ring before it did? You know, we accept these uh, indignities in our life because we've taken them for granted. We accept them as just how it is for me. But actually, these are just the subtlest forms of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this practice is to reveal the forms of suffering that these states of mind cause us, so that we can begin to learn about the about them and how they grab our attention and cause us to suffer. And with that increasing mindfulness and paying attention and being interested to learn about these states of mind, then we can begin to disentangle these, what I call, dysfunctionals, ways of meeting the challenges of life. So I consider these, as I said, these states of mind that cause suffering are really dysfunctional strategies that we use to deal with the challenges of of life. When we were young, you know, we got a boo-boo, we fell down and we cracked our, scratched our knee or bumped our head and uh, one of our parents would come running up to us and ooh, grab us and say, oh, you got a poor little knee, oh, oh, I love you so much, let me kiss you, you baby boo-boo. And... <laughs> <laughs> of And, and, is it working? No. It's working okay? Okay. So, mom or dad comes up and, oh, let me kiss you, boo-boo. And then we get this belief that, oh, when you fall down and you scrape your knee or hurt, that, oh, you should be sad, you should be angry if somebody pushed you, and that it it is appropriate to be sad, even angry, and resentful that this happened to you. It's clear to see that that kind of conditioning, what we've learned, is really dysfunctional. It just doesn't work to address the actual situation of suffering. So, and yet we still use it. We still use all the strategies of getting angry at, blaming others for what we find unpleasant. Or having to deal with people that are a pain in the heart. <laughs> and, and we'd rather not. We would just rather not deal with that situation. And yet we have to. This is suffering. 
This is what the Buddha called dukkha. Having to bear with people that you don't want to be with. Not being able to be with the people that you want to be with. And having to deal with the indignities, as someone would say, uh, of, of having this body. So tonight I want to talk about these things, these dysfunctional strategies uh, that are called in Pali, the Buddhist language, the kilesas, and more commonly known here in this orbit of practice as the hindrances, impediments, um, that which cause uh, suffering. And the reason I want to share some knowledge, some experience, some understanding about them is because as Sayadaw Bhutajaniya acknowledges and reminds us that it is not you who removes these unpleasant, dysfunctional strategies in the mind. It's not that you remove them, but it's wisdom and understanding that actually removes them because we begin to see how ineffective they are. So it's not you who removes the torments, but wisdom does that job. So how should we understand these torments? First, they are habitual, reactive, unskillful states of mind in response to some experience in life. Their actions, feelings, moods, beliefs that encourage us to act out anger, desire, frustration, pride, self-pity. And all of these habitual and reactive unskillful states of mind are rooted in ignorance, delusion. And ignorance or delusion has two flavors. The first is ignorance, which means or points to not knowing what's going on. I'm sure you've seen that today. You know, you get caught in some rant, or you find yourself moving through the lunch line without being aware, just not aware. And it's mindfulness that is going to bring that awareness of the defilements into view. The second kind of ignorance is delusion, what I call uh, not knowing. Or, in this case, it's not knowing correctly, knowing wrongly. And the knowing wrongly is you see what's going on, but you misunderstand it. You believe it to be something other than it really is. So, this kind of delusion requires insight to be able to correct it. Mindfulness sees what's going on, and insight tells us how to understand it. Ignorance obscures the object. We don't see what's going on. Delusion obscures the nature of the object. So, for example, when attachment arises in the mind, desire, longing, yearning, then 
we see only the pleasant aspects of something. When you when, when a, a attachment arises in the mind, you look at something and you'll see only the pleasant. When aversion ri- arises in the mind, you can be looking at the same thing and you have it's unpleasant, so you have aversion to it. For example, you know when you're planning a vacation in the summertime here, and when you think about, oh, we're going to go here, we're going to spend this time, we're going to do these activities, and you can get excited, and you know we have a lot of you know anticipation, and it's a lot of joy in the mind thinking about how it's going to be. And then the reality of a former vacation comes into view and remember, Jesus, it was expensive on that trip. And it rained the whole time. And the mosquitoes were unbelievable. We had a fight over the kids. Da, da, da. And then you get this the aversion's view of the same plan. You have desire and you have aversion. Same plan. Is it any wonder that we're confused? <laughs> I mean, come on. The other thing that all of these uh, defilements or torments or whatever you want to call them is that they are accompanied by restlessness. Now, restlessness is not just the agitation of the body. It's really the rampant, incessant ranting in the mind. So you know this you know this narration that's going on in your mind? I hope you notice. There's this narrative. There's this narrative that weaves everything that ever happens to you into the tapestry of this thing called me. Everything. And so there's this ongoing narration of what we've done, how we felt, who who how we got hurt and who we did and who we didn't. And this, na- this narrative accompanies all suffering. All suffering. It happens in the narrative. In the actual experience of what you're narrating, no suffering. Check it out. When you're lost, when you're lost in thought, it results in some form of either immediate suffering or it plants the seed for suffering. So sometimes... You know, this, these, this delusion is accompanied by desire. And that's when we feel or we succumb to pride, obsession, addiction, uh, all the forms of attachment, craving, clinging that lead to uh, enslavement to your own desire. Or it can be accompanied by aversion. Something happens and you get angry, uh, hatred, you plan on uh, hurting someone, or you, or you even express your aversion towards yourself with frustration, disappointment, um, despair, self-pity. And then there's the subtler forms of aversion, which are you know, irritation, impatience, just kind of pushing away from the experience or trying to push the experience away to get rid of it. And these are all forms of 
uh, a virgin. And I don't have to go on. You know, you know the litany of forms of suffering in your life. But normally, we accept these habits of mind, these unskillful habits of mind. We accept that we're impatient. We accept that we're angry. We accept the fact that, you know, disappointed. We accept as as normal. We think that's normal. But actually, the Buddha pointed and said, this is suffering. So part of our whole investigation of practice is to recognize what these, what these mental states actually feel like in the body, in the mind, and what do they cause us to do. Then you can see more clearly, oh, this, this is definitely suffering. This is, not, this is not satisfactory. Let's put it that way. Suffering sounds so uh, painful. But just unsatisfactoriness is, pretty, is, is less uh, impactful. So because they're so habitual, we don't see them. They're just accepted as the default setting in our mind. And not only that, when due to their frequency, we kind of uh, take them on as our own, something that we always do. So it's not that we're just impatient right now. We say, oh, I'm always impatient. And the slippery slope of experiencing impatience and knowing it, saying or believing, eternalizing this moment and saying, I'm always impatient, to believing that I am an impatient person. And once that idea gets lodged in the heart, in the mind, that I'm, I am impatient or I'm a depressed person, I'm an anxious person, I'm often frustrated, I'm unsatisfied. Once that idea gets implanted in the heart and mind and we own it, we, ain't, we attach to it, really, uh, it's very difficult to get that out. You can, you can avoid a moment of impatience. You can even see that it's pretty enduring and put aside. But once the idea of I'm an impatient person gets in there, you can't just think it out. You have to uproot it through practice. The problem with these unexamined assumptions is that they prevent us from living life fully. If your response to unpleasantness is aversion, you miss it. If you're always longing for something other than now, attachment, craving, yearning, wanting, you also miss the present. You actually miss your life when you're entangled in any of these narratives in the mind. Not only that, they make it difficult to practice meditation. We get entangled. You know, we practice. And is there anybody that didn't experience impatience or wanting things different today? When you do, then your practice is kind of stopped. It's put on hold, waiting for you to come around and accept this is what's happening again. So because they hinder our practice, they prevent us from 
realizing genuine peace in our heart. We could say that these torments or these uh, beliefs about ourselves or these activities in our mind, they enchant the mind. They cast this spell over the mind to where we think, this is a skillful thing to do. This is a skillful way to react to this situation. When in fact, that's just a belief we have and it's not really uh, how things are. So because they enchant the mind, um, <laughs> our teacher Upandita says that these, these habits of mind are a living, breathing, long-running hallucination that has taken over our life. And as long as that narrative is in control, you're living a hallucination. But we also have to acknowledge that these things occur in all of us, frequently. So they're not a mistake. They're not something wrong. It's not even that you cause them to happen. They arise due to causes and conditions, most of which are out of your control. So this is the way things have come to be. You know, these reactive states of mind have been, we have trained ourselves to react in this way. Or we should say that we've been conditioned by parents, peers, authorities of one sort or another to react in this way. But they are also an opportunity. They don't have to be an obstacle to your life. They don't have to be an obstacle to your meditation practice. They're an opportunity because if you practice mindfulness, you see them and you kind of momentarily stop them from taking over the narrative. And you can replace them with more skillful states of mind, patience instead of impatience. And you can know them through awareness. You can come to know the, the, the nature of these unwholesome states of mind. And as you gain knowledge about them, the wisdom, the wisdom will free you from being entangled in them. Buddha recognized in the First Noble Truth, or articulated in the First Noble Truth, that this truth of dukkha, this truth of suffering, this truth of unsatisfactoriness in life. And his antidote for dealing with them is encoded in what's called the Four Noble, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path. <clears throat> The Noble Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings that we undertake. And the first is learning to live in harmony with others and with our internal monitor, if you will. This is living in harmony. It's called sila in, in the Pali language. And it is dealing with the grossest forms of these kalesas or torments. And when they are in control, we often just act out our anger, our rage, our pride, our just jealousy, our addictions. And it's because of not keeping sila, meaning not harming, 
not taking what's not offered, acting out sexual misconduct, uh, speaking in ways that causes harm, dissonance, disagreement, and then using uh, intoxicants that cloud the mind or delude the mind. And when they arrive like that, when they arise in the mind as these transgressive torments, they cause harm to yourself and others. And when they arrive and you're entangled in them, you act them out. So, several years ago now, I was in Thailand, actually I was in Burma, had tickets to go to Bangkok, and from Bangkok on to Koh Samoy, down southern Thailand. And so I had bought my ticket, had it ahead of time. On the day of the flight, I went to the check-in point, and the ticket agent, and I said, I have my ticket, I want to go on this thing. And she looked at the ticket and she said, oh, uh, your your seat is no longer available. You didn't call us yesterday to tell us that you were going to be flying today. And I said, uh, I, this is my ticket, I bought my ticket, I'm, I'm expecting that. And she said, no, you, your, your ticket has been given, to, your seat has been given to someone else. I wasn't being too mindful. <laughs> and I was enraged. I just said, what? I did, I did this and you, you, you've got to give me my ticket, I want to go. for me. Whatever my particular angle was. And she patiently was sitting behind the counter waiting for me to finish with my rant. And then she looked at me and she said, that's not nice. <laughs> okay, reality check. <laughs> that's what happens, you know, you get entangled in this thing and you just act it out with rage and demandedness, it's just, you know. So you can see that this is um, painful, causes a lot of suffering for me and probably for her, although she did eventually find a seat for me, but nevertheless, (laughs) you know, getting angry to to, to try to get your own way is something that we all have done at times. Just like, if I get angry enough, they're going to just get me out of their way by do what I, doing what I want. So, by paying attention to our intentions before acting and speaking, we begin to limit the danger of acting out in these st- states of mind. But even if we're not acting them out, if we're not speaking or acting in such a way to uh, harm ourselves or others, the mind can still be obsessing, even if you're not acting it out. You know, we can just stuff it with your rage. You know, acting out rage is pretty scary. And so we, we might have enough control not to act it out, but the mind is just seething with rage or seething with desire. You know, or whatever, whatever your particular <laughs> default setting is, <laughs> and when we when we recognize through mindful awareness that this is 
this is what we're experiencing internally, then we can arrest it. We can put some brakes on it. We're not trying to get rid of that obsession. We're just trying to be with it so that we don't act it out. This is the second training in the Noble Eightfold Path, to develop tranquility, or samadhi, they call it. And it keeps us from just getting caught and collapsing into the unwholesome state of mind. Now this is the most painful place in in practice where we see what's going on. We're caught in some suffering state of mind and we can't get rid of it. And so we're just left with seeing it, feeling it, being with it, and can't we don't have the understanding of how to let go of it. And it just kind of keeps running until we get so tired and bored we just ignore it and move on. You can ignore it, but it won't ignore you. It just goes in there and just waits for an opportunity to kind of enter the mind again. So it is persevering mindfulness that's going to reveal these obsessive habits of the mind desire, aversion, self-pity, etc. And so for dealing with these obsessive torments, the Buddha offered a third uh, training, and that is the development of insight. And insight uh, arises due to continuity of mindfulness in seeing things as as they really are. Seeing the pixel, as I call it, the pixelated view of your life, not just the narrative of your life. The narrative of your life and being aware of the narrative of your life is not going to lead to vipassana insight. Period. That's a surprise. Surprise to some people practicing mindfulness. It doesn't. It can lead to managing the narrative, but not escaping the narrative. So it's insight that begins to recognize the latent forces that arise as obsession that are then acted out as unskillful actions. So when we practice in insight, we look at everything that arises in the mind. And in time we begin to begin to understand, really, how these things are happening. What is it that leads to this belief that my addictive patterns, behavior, what is it that allows me to think that this is a skillful way of dealing with conditions in life? We've, we've learned this. We, we have taught ourselves to be uh, obsessive or addictive, addicted, or to have those tendencies And it's only by seeing how that happened can we begin to disentangle or decondition those behaviors. And with understanding like this, we can begin to uh, uproot the, the tendencies in the mind to obsess and to act out. This is called liberation. This is the real liberation. Not just putting things aside, not just subduing through mindfulness, but actually from understanding, learning to let go. So this is 
these are, this is what we're dealing with, is torments, they're like this, we all have plenty of experience with them, and practice is necessary to reveal them and to understand them. So, if it's the understanding that we're looking for, how do we do that? Because being here, I haven't noticed anybody hitting on anybody, haven't noticed anybody, you know, kind of angry and raging at somebody. Somehow, with our commitment to sila, not acting out, and our commitment to practice uh, samadhi or tranquility, we've got things under control, kinda. <laughs> the potential for any of those unskillful thoughts and actions is just below the surface. All we got to do is have some, as commonly said, an insignificant event, you know, can provoke this obsessive belief in there's a catastrophe happening. So, what we need to do is learn about these torments. So there are a few elements to this learning process. And the first is, we need some information. You need to hear a talk like this that points to the forms of suffering that we all experience, that we are not yet considering as suffering. Impatience, self-pity, pride, we don't consider that suffering. It's just, this is normal human life. But actually, when you actually feel into those experiences, then you can see, oh, this is, this is really unpleasant, this is unsatisfactory. So it's getting the knowledge of these defilements. And it's said that there are more than 1,000 of them. Whoa. But anyway, they all fall in the general categories of the four, five hindrances. Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and the fifth one. <laughs> Guess what? That one got uh, surgically removed from my mind. <laughs> so, so since we have this information, now we have this no, no, under, is information that these are unskillful states of mind. And then the, the deal is, or the challenge is, to recognize them in your own life. Now, we've heard, you've heard these, you know, enumerated sufferings, whether it's impatience or pride or whatever. And because we take them as who we are, or how we are, or it's okay, then we don't, we don't look at them. We don't look at them as the danger that they really are, that cause us to suffer. And so we take them as part of me, who I actually am. Because they're so woven into the narrative that we can't imagine our life without them. Can you imagine never having impatience again? Never having aversion again? We, we, We don't go that way. We think this is essential part of a human life. It is, if you want to suffer. So, with knowledge, we come out of, or with this kind of awareness, we come out of denial 
and avoidance and minimizing these experiences and how they actually feel or impact the mind. When we practice mindfulness and awareness, it has this capacity to prevent the mind from deceiving itself. When you see clearly, oh, this is what's going on, you can't spin it into some partisan view of yourself because you see it. This is the way it is. And that is what our challenge is. How to look at ordinary experience, what we call ordinary experience, looking at it with that lens of, huh, okay, what is this doing in my life? Or how can I recognize that this isn't as good as I had imagined? Or come out of the denial and avoiding it and just see that, wow, I really am currently really frustrated, disappointed, or whatever. And one way of dealing with that is to objectively name them. If you're embroiled in some emotional drama, if you can just recognize what is actually going on and name it for yourself, that just reduces the identification with it and just begins to kind of see it out there. It's like, wow, there's anger happening. It's not that I'm angry. It's just like, wow, anger is happening. And so we're not, we're not denying that we're angry. We're actually seeing it as a momentary arising in the mind. So someone said, I think it might have been Jung, said, to name a demon begins to take its power away. If you don't see what's causing you to suffering, to suffer, it has control. As soon as you can recognize it and name it, it's kind of it, you put it in its place. It's still there, but you put it in its place. The second element of dealing with or cultivating wisdom is to relax. To think that we can actually just uh, endure these. Uh, difficult states of mind, is delusion. And so we often, you know, when we, when we see ourselves acting out unskillfully, the tendency is to just get upset with ourselves, self-judging. You know, even if it's after the fact, we get ashamed of what we said or did, or we hold resentfully what indignity that we think we've suffered And so relaxing the judgment of experiencing these mental states, to deny your anger when you're angry, or to deny your fear when you're fearful, is avoiding, or denying, or minimizing the danger to yourself, or the suffering that you experience. So... To relax our judgment is to acknowledge that this conditioned habit is not who I am. It's not mine. It's not who I am. But, as Tajaniya has acknowledged, he said, the mind is not yours, but you are responsible for it. Meaning, what comes into your mind, you don't get to pick and choose. 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that today. <laughs> right? Okay, you don't get to choose it. But once it arises in the mind, you've got to deal with it. You've got to have a response to it instead of a reaction to it. You have to deal with it. This thought that's aroused in the mind that's not yours. In the earlier years of Dharma practice, there was always a question, and it might be a question now, like, when we see these incessant, ridiculous, mundane, crazy thoughts in our mind, the question is, where did they come from? And the correct answer is, the person behind you. Oh, that's, that, was, that was the playful response. But it's kind of like that, isn't it? Who put these thoughts in my mind? <laughs> We're looking to blame something, somewhere. If we can begin to recognize the cause of these uh, arisings in the mind, we may see that, oh, when I'm in this situation, or when somebody says this to me, I always respond in this way. So if we can begin to see the um, how we get to this experience, then we can deal with removing them. Not trying to fix anything, but just to see that, hey, when this is happening, or when I go here in the mind or in the body, you know, I always get upset somehow. And, you know, to avoid that is skillful. Sometimes, you know, i got to say, sometimes in, in Dharma practice, you know, people think, oh, I have to be able to deal with everything as it is. So if I'm an addict and I want to go into a bar, go ahead. You can develop your mindfulness and wisdom there. We don't have to do that. We can avoid a lot of suffering just by letting it go, understanding that these conditions lead to suffering, whatever it is. So it's important to recognize that denying our suffering is not the answer. We actually have to open to it, feel it, learn more about it. So there's information and then there's Relaxing, relaxing the mind, and then reflect on what we know, what we've heard, intelligently, so that we're not thinking ourselves into more suffering. So we recognize what's going on, we relax our reaction to recognizing it, and then the third factor in developing wisdom is to refrain from not acting them out. And that means exercising restraint, practicing sila, not acting them out, so that we can observe them. And the way to refrain, reframe our, excuse me, when we refrain from acting them out, it gives an opportunity to actually see more, feel more deeply into what these uh, experiences are. 
So sometimes when we're overwhelmed, we can replace that experience with something more skillful. So that when you're entangled in some aversive snit, you can practice metta, loving-kindness. When you're feeling a lot of doubt, you can read about others' experiences that can inspire confidence. When you're feeling uh, blamed by someone, you can practice forgiveness. So you can replace those unskillful habits of mind with more skillful thought. So when we refrain from acting them out, it gives us a little more time, a little more space, a little more Stop that sentence. I'm going to start another one. So, so we recognize what's going on, relax into recognizing it, we refrain from acting it out. And the fourth way of working with it is to reframe our wrong understanding. When we get angry, or when we act out, or when we have or experience any of these torments, we should understand that this is a natural phenomena. It's not a mistake. This arises due to causes and conditions, most of which are out of your control. So because they're part of the Dharma, result of causes and conditions, they're not chaotic, they're not accidental, they're not yours either, but they are actually an opportunity, not an obstacle in your practice. Because in opportunity, you can see, oh, this is this is conditioned. This is not inherently who and how I am. It arises due to conditions. So when you know that things are conditioned, we can be patient. We can say, this is out of my control. I'm not able to make it arise or make it go away. But I can be patient with them. And if we understand that they are temporary visitors to the mind, they're not who I am, then we can be persistent and continually seeing this is not who I am. They arise due to causes and conditions. We can be patient and persistent. Utejaniya again says, try to recognize that these torments are simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you are only increasing their strength. That's an important thing to remember. If they're rising and you're not naming them or recognizing them or accepting them, they just grow stronger, more deeply rooted as a habit in the mind. Yogi. Yogis mistake the, yogis make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experiences rather than being willing to try to work with the defilements or the torments. I have a question for you. When you thought about coming to the retreat, saw the announcement, oh, there's going to be a retreat here with the three of us, and you had some interest and excitement and thinking, oh, yeah, I want to go back to that place or with these teachers and, you know, get really calm and clear. Ah, such a relief to go on retreat and 
It's so peaceful. It's so peaceful. Right? And yet we get here and it's like, it's not that at all. You know, our idea of, our idea of it doesn't correlate with what our actual experience is. Struggling, impatience, restlessness, boredom. Right? So, how many of you came to this retreat saying, great, eight days of suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Working with my impatience, being impatient, restless, caught up in desire, frustration, disappointment. Yeah, that's what I want to do. (laughs) It'd be more wise and skillful to know that. And say, well, I'm going to go to retreat and I don't expect anything pleasant. <laughs> you don't have to expect you don't have to expect anything unpleasant either. You just be careful what you're attached to about the retreat experience. So we have this information, we have this intelligence, we're thinking about it intelligently, and now we need to practice insight. So insight insightful awareness, intuitive understanding are insight practice. Mindfulness, as you are beginning to experience and understand, is about receiving the present moment's experience. We're not trying to create... I mean, some mindfulness practices are more uh, creating uh, deep concentration or something like that. But in insight practice, we're just receiving the present moment, whatever it is. So, receiving the experience with mindfulness, we begin to taste what's called the unique nature of this experience. And if you can grok it, you know, frustration feels very differently than anticipation. Or disappointment is very different than uh, judgment. But we don't know that. Those are just words in our narrative until we actually feel into the mental state when it has arisen. And rather than saying, oh, this is my suffering, this is my anger, we see that, oh, this thing has arisen due to causing conditions mostly out of my control. But we can understand it as, oh, this is the nature of fear rather than, I'm afraid. We can understand that this experience is the nature of desire, rather than, I need anything. So it's when we pay attention with mindful awareness, there's no spin. We don't put a spin on our experience. We see it as it is. The mind is straight. It sees things. It doesn't... uh, it's not partisan to it one way or the other. It just sees, this is the way it is. When you can no longer deceive yourself with a story about things that make you look good, then you see things as they are. So Tejaniya then says, use the experience, the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena, they are not yours, and everyone experiences them. If you think that some of those 
little Buddhas that you see sitting in the room with you are not experiencing impatience, irritation, frustration, whatever. Look at your own mind. You know, and this is this is one of the secrets that, that uh, teachers understand is that all of our minds are the same. What you experience, everyone in this room experiences. How you deal with it, that's that's the work. But there's n- none of us are exempt from these states of mind. If there's anger in the mind, don't think about what is making you angry. Instead, notice that there's anger and get interested in it. Oh, this is anger. This is the nature of anger. This is what it feels like. These are the kind of thoughts that anger provokes in the mind. So we're we're not denying that there's anger in the mind. We're disentangling from it. We're disidentifying with it and saying, oh, this is the nature of anger. It's not me. I'm not angry. But this is the nature of what has arisen. So each of these, each of these torments in the mind are unpleasant. When you actually feel into them, they're unpleasant. And because of that, we can learn to um, let go of them. Meaning, if you don't see that they're unpleasant, you'll still hanker after them. So some people say, hey, yeah, but, you know, when I'm desiring something, when I want something, that's pleasant. It's like, yeah, yeah, I I want that. But actually what is pleasant is the object that you're seeking. The actual feeling of wanting is unpleasant. So be careful not to get... This is is a lesson in, in dealing with greed. If you focus on the object of your attachment and greed, it looks good, it looks pleasant, it's worth pursuing. But if you actually feel into what the desire actually feels like, you can see, oh, this is not not so skillful, not so pleasant at all. <clears throat> so, learning to investigate is important, meaning learning how to pay attention to the the mental states that are causing you suffering without getting identified with it. And the way to do that is just what I call pixelate it. You pixelate this experience. The story of your your suffering has got a whole history. You've got many incidences or something similar like that, similarly like that in your life. And you have a lot of comments about it. You have a lot of beliefs about it. You're identified with it. And to disentangle from the mind, you have to see that. You have to see the the underlying beliefs, assumptions, expectations, uh, conditioning that has brought you to this dysfunctional strategy. And to do that, you have to look again and again and again and again and see, understand, begin to understand more deeply all of the causes, all of the conditions in your past, in your present, in your anticipation of the future, that are conditioning your acceptance of these unskillful states of mind. The second way of investigating is, you know, sometimes people say something like, well, I have a lot of anger, I have a lot of whatever, and I've looked at it, I've, I've, I've 
plumbed the depth of my angry response in this situation. And I know everything about it. I know who said what, why they said it, I know how I felt, and it was just, you know, and even if you're mindful of it and you know how it feels, when something keeps coming back in the mind, you've seen it, you've noted it, it's gone away temporarily, but it keeps coming back, our understanding is there's something that has not yet been seen about this. And because you haven't seen it, you can't think about it. You don't know what it is. So the second way of investigating is not to look directly at everything through the lens of pixelating, but rather to recognize and acknowledge yourself, this is what I know. What else is being going? What else is going on there? Or what else, what has not yet been recognized about this situation? So when you ask that kind of question, it puts aside what you've already known, and it makes a space in the mind to let something else in, some other understanding come in. And if you go looking for it, of course, you're not going to see anything because you're looking for something. But if you just, I want to say, empty the mind, you can't really empty the mind, but if you can not hang on to what you already know, the narrative of your suffering, then you can, oh, sometimes just get a hint of what is not being acknowledged or recognized in this situation. So we have recognizing, relaxing, retraining, reframing, uh, receiving it through mindfulness. And the sixth factor is realizing their inherent nature of these mental states. What this means is that we see beneath the surface of the story about them the narrative of it. And we begin to see that all of them really are unsatisfactory. You might believe that pride is not suffering. But once you get into it and you recognize it, you'll see that there's a lot of suffering, even in pride. So it's recognizing that these are unsatisfactory. They're painful, they cause us to feel insecure, or they oppress us with their incessant impact on the mind. Not only are they unsatisfactory, they are out of control. We can't control them. We can't tell the mind, don't get angry. Well, you can tell the mind, don't get angry. It'll do what it wants. So when we, when we come to see that all of these mental states are not ours, they're not under our control, then we begin to realize there's, there's really no way to hang on to them. And thirdly, we recognize that, as as we're paying attention to them, that they don't last very long. If you're avoiding them, the story of them can go on forever. But when you turn your attention to them and you actually really feel into them, they don't last. But you'll only learn that if you do it. I can tell you this, but that's just knowledge. You need to experience, you need to practice to experience that Oh, this is the way it is. These are the conditions of all experience. They're unsatisfactory, they're out of your control, and they don't last very long. But these understandings are actually liberating. 
because they encourage us to let go. If something is something you're hanging, uh, hankering after, and you know that it's impermanent, it's not going to last, why would you pursue it? Why do you hang on to that idea? Or when you think, uh, this is really pleasant, this is really satisfactory, I like this, this is very satisfying. How long does it last? We recently had to get a new pickup truck for the sanctuary in Maui. And it was a used pickup, but it was a nice looking truck. And, you know, someone drove me home in it, I don't drive anymore. Someone drove me home in it, and it was all shiny and nice, and you know, no stains in the seat covers and things like that. It was really nice. And then a day later, one of the, the stewards in the land said, "I got to use the truck to go to the to the recycling um, to take the recycling stuff down to the recycling center." And immediately, my my mind went, "Wait, that's my truck. <laughs> I don't want anything to happen to my truck." Having a new truck, that's great. Having the fear of it getting damaged, suffering. You can't have one without the other. So, as Saito Tejanid now also said, as long as you are aware of the defilements, you're doing well. You see, you're all doing well. As long as you're aware of the defilements, you're not doing well. You are doing well. In order to understand them, to really deeply understand these defilements, these torments, you have to watch them again and again. Because what can you just, what can you gain from just having good experiences? Having good experiences. If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. So always remember that it is not you who removes these torments, these causes of suffering in your life. It's not you. You can't just get rid of them. But wisdom can. So our task in practice is to develop this wisdom. And we'll see then that these torments cease to rise, cease to arise. Or I should say, they don't arise so often. They don't last for so long, and they're not so intense. This is the path to the end of suffering. So that's the first talk I've given in a year and a half or something. It's great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.